Hi, I'm Sergio. And I'm Alex. And this is the IPHO Podcast. Each episode, we'll be hosting professionals with diverse backgrounds from across the industry. We have two goals, to bring you timely, relevant insights from across the healthcare landscape and information that can help support your professional growth. What non-traditional career opportunities exist for pharmacists, and how can I stand out from other candidates? How is COVID impacting the way we develop medications and support patients? What social inequalities exist within the biopharmaceutical industry, and what are companies doing about it? So whether you're a pharmacy student interested in learning more about fellowships or in pursuing a direct career in industry, a current or former fellow trying to figure out your next step, or just interested in a distraction from your workout, we've got you covered. And remember, the views and opinions we and our guests express on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Hey, we know you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in a pharmacy career. Keck Graduate Institute in Claremont, California offers a Doctor of Pharmacy degree that will prepare you for the ever-increasing diverse role that pharmacists play in providing healthcare. Unlike your standard PharmD, KGI offers unique certificates in four specialized areas plus 10 different experiential rotations and unlimited connections within the pharmaceutical industry. KGI even offers a six-year accelerated PharmD for those of you coming directly from community college. Applications are still open for the fall of 2022. Learn more at kgi.edu slash pharmd. Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of the IPHO podcast. I'm super excited today that we're joined by Elena Doe, um, who is a senior director and head of field medical affairs and medical excellence at SOBI. Um, she's also a certified professional career coach, um, and it just so happens that we both did fellowship uh, together back in the day at Bayer. Welcome to the show, Elaine. Thank you, Sergio. I'm thrilled to be here, and it's so wonderful to connect with you again. I know. It's been quite a while. Um, maybe for, for myself and our listeners, you can talk us through a little bit of uh, your career journey uh, since fellowship. Absolutely. So yeah, so after the two years we spent together at Bayer Healthcare, I joined Accorda Therapeutics, where I started off as an MSL and worked my way up to regional director, where I managed part of the MSL team. From there, I joined EMD Serono and built field excellence from the ground up. And then I, where I currently am at is SOBI, where I'm the senior director and I head up uh, field medical affairs and medical excellence. That's amazing. Um, so, you know, what I've always wondered is, you know, coming from pharmacy school, did you know that you wanted to be an MSL, you know, in, in pharmacy school? And, and how did you make that decision? Did you know an MSL? I, so, so I did not know anything about the pharmaceutical industry when I joined pharmacy school. I went to University of Rhode Island, followed in my mother's footsteps, who was a retail pharmacist, thought that that was where I was going until spent some time in retail pharmacy and realized, oh no, this is not for me. This is, this is not for me. I mean, I think it's a fantastic profession, but it wasn't what was um, really meaningful to myself. So three years in a pharmacy school, we had some fellows come in and talk about the various opportunities for pharmacists within industry. And they mentioned the, the role of the MSL. And to me, I was just awestruck. I was like, wow, you get to use your communication skills and your scientific acumen and, and go out and engage with brilliant thought leaders. So fortunately, um, one of my professors, her husband was an MSL. 
So I asked him if he'd be willing to meet for coffee to really learn more about what his day-to-day looked like, learned about the Rutgers Fellowship Program. And from there, I was I was set. That was going to be how I started my career. It, it's interesting that uh, we talk about your network and you just never know. Um, people, people reach out on LinkedIn. You reach out through... Uh, you know, a professor who you likely, before you mentioned it and found out, you probably didn't know they were an MSL. Their husband was an MSL, I'm assuming, but it kind of enabled that way to work through. So you make a good impression with a professor, start to build that relationship, learn from the husband. Um, it's, it's, It's interesting. So you found out three years in, people now are planning from the second they walk into pharmacy school. Uh, I I've told people on this show, I found out about fellowship a week before. I had no idea what an MSL was when I was interviewing for fellowships for MSL positions. But I've seen what, and I've never been an MSL. I've seen what they do. It's incredible. It's it's a it's a heck of a career. Um, and and I know that a lot of listeners have asked us about uh, careers in uh, field medical. But in MSL, there's other areas of field medical. You talked about field medical excellence and. When you look through these brochures for fellowships and careers from the outside looking in, sometimes these terms are a little bit nebulous. Can you help our listeners understand what field excellence is versus a medical science liaison? Sure. So so they are two different functions. Um, medical excellence or, or field excellence currently is a little bit ambiguous across pharmaceutical companies. If you look at job descriptions One might be really all around the soft skills, the rapport building, the strategic planning, whereas another might be scientific training. Another might be operational. So medical excellence currently is a a huge umbrella. What I did at EMD Serona was focused on the soft skills, how I didn't touch the science there. We had an amazing scientific trainer. So my role really was to coach and develop MSLs to be able to, to develop strategic and meaningful relationships with thought leaders, um, really have excellent communication skills, presentation skills, active listening. So things like that. And I mean, when you started, I mean, you started out in probably more of a bread and butter MSL type role. So, you know, you, you weren't necessarily trained on, you know, medical excellence. So how did you, you know, come to pursue a role like that? Um, you know, what, what were your biggest learnings transitioning from a, you know, field medical, a classical field medical role into a, you know, medical excellence role? Sure. And as Alex mentioned before, it really is about your network and getting to know people and asking good questions and being authentic, right? So when I started off as an MSL, I had the luxury of being in a small company. We didn't have scientific training dedicated. We didn't have field excellence dedicated to our medical affairs. So when I saw a gap, I would raise my hand. I would volunteer. I would say, hey, as long as I, I hit, you know, I hit my KPIs, can I build a, an excellence curriculum? Can I build a scientific curriculum? And I've asked for opportunities, and I still do today throughout my career that have aligned with my competencies and my skill sets, but also my values and my interests. So that is kind of how I've been able to grow and develop skill sets that weren't a traditional part of my education or training or my my job description starting point. Um, I've also taken risks. So when I left Accorda, I was not looking for field excellence. I didn't even know what field excellence was. <laughs> 
I was looking to grow as, as, a, as a leader in field medical affairs. Um, but again, your network, I, I was interviewing. I actually had a job description that was, uh, or a job offer that was in line with what I wanted as the next step in, in my career. But I had an old colleague who called me up and said, hey, Lane, have an amazing opportunity. You can join the field leadership team and build field excellence, to which my response was, what is field excellence? Tell me more. What are you looking for? Um, I also did a lot of informational interviews with people at the organization. So I got a sense of what they were looking for, what the company culture was like. And ultimately, I, I took that risk. And I'm so glad I did because the skills and the experiences that were very, very different than what I did before set me up and make me a better leader and better position for the role I'm in today. And, you know, the thing that I find interesting with that answer, too, is it sounds like it took a fair amount of self-reflection to, to figure out what it is that you wanted to do. Because I know, and I'm sure you know, lots of folks who've spent an entire career in field medical, they just love that job. And so I just wonder, you know, when was that inflection point for you? And, you know, how did you come to realize that, you know, it was more these leadership opportunities that you wanted to do as opposed to staying in the field, which is a very valid, you know, long-term career for, for lots of folks? Sure. And and I agree. Like being an MSL is a lifelong career for a lot of people. It's a dream opportunity, right? I mean, it's a dream job. Um, but for me, I really wanted to have more insight into the organizational strategy and a seat at the, at the leadership table to make decisions and to have that greater impact. So when I moved from MSL to MSL manager, I fell in love with people development. You know, I really, I loved coaching. I loved helping other people hit their goals um, and, to, and to really have a greater impact on the team. And then from there, my next step was to move into either a national director or um, now I'm a, this is my first second line leadership role. So for me, it was more about greater influence, greater insight into the organization strategy and, and decision-making. And it took a, a little bit of um, risk tolerance almost. Maybe I'll break out my Yiddish here. Maybe a little bit of chutzpah to move into another role. Because like you said, a dream job is an MSL, but you built a peripheral skill set, uh, joined the leadership team, and um, you know you could spend an entire career as an MSL and have a very successful and rewarding career. But now you're managing and leading and growing MSLs. So when you think about building a team and identifying talented individuals, what do you look for? What makes a good MSL in your eyes? So of course, the love for the science is, is always number one, right? That's the industry. We're pharmacists. That's why we became pharmacists. But love for people is equally, if not more important for an MSL. MSLs are relationship experts. They have to enjoy connecting with others um, and good at networking. So when I became an MSL, I thought doors were going to fly open. Doctors were going to invite me in to do presentations. I didn't realize just how difficult access was. Um, it is. You have to be persistent and self-driven and motivated and extremely autonomous. So 
love for science, love for people, um, and also very agile. So an MSL wears a lot of hats. You're not just going out, having meetings and coming home. You're supporting cross-functional things like sales training, clinical trials, um, a variety of different things. So you have to be very um, agile and flexible in what your day-to-day looks like. So you you mentioned something earlier. Um, you used an acronym that people may may or may not un- understand, which was KPI. And, sure. and I, I see it all the time, but mm-hmm. how did, how did you, you talked about what makes an MSL, uh, what qualities make a good MSL, how are MSLs evaluated? What, how do, how does a company evaluate a good MSL? Every company is different. And yes. So just for the, the listeners, KPI stands for key performance indicators. So essentially it's, it's the MSL's metrics and every company evaluates this differently. Some organizations don't have metrics for their MSLs. I'm in the camp that there should be some, but they should be qualitative and quantitative. So unlike a sales team, MSLs are not at all tied to prescription numbers or, or anything like that. We, we're not responsible for driving sales. Um, but you also, in my opinion, should be measured on you know how many face-to-face or virtual interactions that you're having. We don't want just people sitting at home and, and reading journal articles. Um, but it also has to be meaningful. So uh, a huge part of MSL currency is what's called a medical insight, because and the role of the MSL is one to go out there to develop these strategic relationships and to provide non-biased, scientifically accurate and timely information about the company's products and science to the healthcare provider so that that HCP can make the best clinical decisions for their patients. But the relationship has to be mutually beneficial. So the MSL is also responsible for asking good strategic questions to the HCP, getting their insights. So their thoughts, their opinions, their perspectives that have the potential to shape the company's medical strategy. So bringing them. So uh, companies might have metrics or numbers around the number of HCP engagements per month, the number of insights that come back to the organization, as well as things like advisory boards supported or um, speaker trainings done. So really, I wish I had the right answer um, because this could be a contentious point. You know, nobody wants to be evaluated simply on the number because that absolutely does not speak to the value, the, the great value an MSL brings to the organization. So it really is a gray zone. I've also seen some like variations between field medical teams at, you know, smaller pharma, biotechs, as opposed to, you know, big pharma. You spent time at Bayer, you know, during your fellowship. So, you know, what, what advice might you have for students about, you know, the differences between, you know, field medical at smaller companies versus larger companies? And are, are there benefits or trade-offs to pursuing, you know, a fellowship at one versus the other? You know, th- does it make a difference, do you think, where you start out? Um, so I could really kind of speak to my experience starting out at a smaller organization. You know, when I joined Accorda, I think we were at 300 employees. So it was, it was small. And I think the benefit to that is there are unique opportunities that you can take advantage of as I did, you know, we didn't have a scientific trainer. I saw that I was able to do that and have that unique experience. Um, Not saying that that doesn't exist at at, at bigger, larger organizations, but you can kind of create your own path, I think a little bit easier at smaller organizations or even startups. 
but but there's also pros and cons, right? There's resources and and money and and things like that that smaller organizations may or may not have the luxury of having. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I, you know, I, I've struggled in giving advice to students about, you know, should I start you know, at a smaller company? Should I start at a larger company? And, and my feeling is it really comes down to the individual and like their skill set, where they are in their development. Some people, I think, thrive in an environment where there's a little bit maybe more ambiguity, more opportunity to step up and, you know, dive in. Some people, I think, crave a little bit more structure and process, you know, that's more associated with, uh, with big pharma. Um, you know, and I, I wonder, you know, as, as you went through your, you know, the early stages of your career, you know, the sort of coaching and mentorship that you received, what stuck out for you as being the most helpful? So, that's an excellent question and goes back to professional networking. I've always, I'm very much an extrovert, a people person. I like to get to know people. Um, I've always, starting out as an MSL, wanted to develop strong relationships with cross-functional partners. So I worked very, very, very closely with um, sales training, with my sales representatives, compliantly, of course, you know, every company is, is different there, but um, those relationships have been integral to my professional development. And I've sought out mentors in, in positions and in leadership positions that just happen to be cross-functional. So one of my, my strongest mentors and coaches of my career was actually somebody who at Accorda um, was responsible for leading the sales team. And I think having a diverse uh, group of coaches and mentors from different functions really will push you outside of your comfort zone, as well as expose you to different jobs um, that, that might have not been of interest to you before. That's interesting because even though you've, you've built your network outside of medical affairs, you've, it sounds like you've learned from others and incorporated that because you haven't stepped outside of medical affairs. It's not like you took that network experience, you took that advice, stepped into sales. You just, it sounds like perhaps you may have taken some of the traits and some of the experiences and some of the learnings from that individual. And it's a good lesson in building that um, board of directors who can help to guide and teach you along the way. It's something we've talked about from time to time. And I'll tell you, I lean hard on my board of directors and I try to keep it diverse. Exactly. And, and that's a great point. And I haven't stepped out of medical affairs yet. Interview me in, in maybe three to five years and we'll, we'll see where I am because it has certainly piqued my interest and helped me to grow skills that will definitely transfer outside of medical affairs. Hey, we know you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in a pharmacy career. Keck Graduate Institute in Claremont, California offers a Doctor of Pharmacy degree that will prepare you for the ever-increasing diverse role that pharmacists play in providing healthcare. Applications are still open for the fall of 2022. Learn more at kgi.edu slash pharmd. One of the things that you touched on, uh, you know, I think it was during the, the introduction, um, is that you've got a certified professional coach um, certification. And, you know, as we spend time talking about, you know, coaching and, and mentorship, I wonder what, what led you to pursue that? Um, and like, when was it in your career that you decided the time was, was right? Sure. And again, this goes back similar to field excellence. If you would have asked me what a professional coach was 
four years ago, I would have probably rolled my eyes and said, I don't know, that's something fluffy. I don't, I have no idea. It's like thinking about like, um, I don't relationship coaching or something. I didn't realize that there was actual professional certified coaching that happened, um, in our industry. Right. I mean, there's executive coaching and how I even became aware that this was a profession and and a really strong and meaningful one was going back to those informational interviews and asking questions. And I still, like, I think having informational interviews to find out about a role or a position or a function is powerful. I still, at this point in my career, have regular informational interviews to learn more. Um, But going back to your question, Sergio, a few years ago, I was um, at a workshop, Discovery Insights, which is I'm also certified in Discovery Insights. I think it's an amazing tool to increase self-awareness and communication skills. And the facilitator, who had been in industry for 20 plus years, but now owned her own company, um, was talking about how she's a certified professional executive coach and, and coaches CEOs. I'm like, what? what is she talking about? What on earth is she talking about? So I went up uh, during a break. I'm like, are you free for lunch? Can we talk during this break? Because I need to know more. I, I need to know more. So we sat down. She told me a little bit about what coaching was. And I also, I always thought that coaching was the same as mentoring. I use those hand in hand. It's very different. Like pure coaching is not sharing your experiences or your guidance or opinions. Pure coaching is helping to one, clarify somebody's goals, but two, to help them achieve them on their own terms in their own way. So if, for example, like if you wanted to be head of field medical affairs, I can tell you all day long about what I did to set myself up to be here today. But I don't know your life. I don't know your professional values. What's meaningful to you? Like, what are you willing to sacrifice to get there? So what happened for me is not necessarily going to be the way you're going to get from the same point A to point B, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. It sounds like an individualized approach to the person's needs and, you know, desires and aspirations. And it sounds suspiciously like that might be helpful if you're like running a team, you know, so do you find yourself using those skills quite a bit now that you're, you're running a team? I, sh- I sure do. Yeah. So as I mentioned, this is, this is my first second line leadership role. So I manage, we have two field medical teams here and I manage their national directors. So having influence through leaders that can positively impact the team is is quite different and and quite challenging but i use my coaching skills every single day you know i ask and i listen and i ask thought provoking questions that challenge my leaders to think outside the box and to think differently Um, I also do that with clients. So I love um, coaching. I coach outside of my current organization on the side as well, specifically around career development. Um, Being intentional, as you mentioned, or one of you guys mentioned before about self-reflection, we all want to say, oh yeah, we can spend time thinking about it. But actually having the dedicated time to spend thinking about your values, what's important to you, where do you want to go? How am I going to get there is a whole different story. So yeah, it's Having that certification has been life-changing. I know that sounds super corny, but it, it, it really has been life-changing and it, it has definitely changed how I show up as a, as a leader at work and at home. 
It's amazing. And I mean, for those who are curious about it, I mean, I, I, I didn't know much about it before doing some research before the show, but what's involved in, in getting a certification like that? How long does it take? How much does it cost roughly? Like for those who might be interested in doing it. Sure. And are you taking any new clients? I know you mentioned you, you're doing some, some coaching on the side. For those who are listening, um, are, you, are you accepting new clients? That's a, that's a great question. So there are a variety of different coaching schools. Um, I went to the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching, or IPEC, which is one of the, the most well-known and well-respected coaching um, organizations in the United States. My program took a little bit over a year. And I started it during COVID when travel was, you know, pretty much not happening whatsoever. I had been toying with the idea for a little while, but it is very time consuming. It's it's pretty intense. Um, you have to do a lot of peer coaching. You have to get coached by your peers. You work with a professional certified coach as a mentor. Um, there's a lot of didactic work. Um, there's a couple of intensives. So it is a huge time commitment. Cost can vary depending on the school. It could start anywhere probably from about $10,000 upwards to $20,000. So it's also a financial um, investment. Um, and then there are different credentials for schooling. So if, if you want the true coaching certification, you're going to want to look for a school that's ICF, International Coaching Federation, accredited. Um, and then there's different levels of coaches as you have different experiences and, di and you get more hours, more expertise. Um, I am taking new clients, um, not, not, a, not a lot, but specifically around career development and interview prep right now. Which is good timing. Well, anytime is a good time to become a better interviewer. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, I had a I had a lag in between interviews, and I, I got into an interview for the first time in years, and I went, I used to do this, <laughs> and, and and it took me some time to kind of get back into the flow of things. So it's it's never a bad time. No, and I love it. it. And I make it fun. Like interviews really should be high energy and engaging and you should be interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. So it's could be a daunting experience, but it doesn't have to be. It's great advice. Um, I, it, when you're interviewing fellows who are trying or interviewing for a fellowship position on the other side of the table and you're when you're trying to calm someone down, it's always that's one of my go to's. It's, hey, remember, you need to want to be here too. The people on the, the people you're talking to are going to be, you're going to be with them. They're going to have an influence on your career. You want to be with them as well. Well, and I'm sure in your current role, um, you do quite a bit of interviewing now in kind of a second level management position. So, um, you know, and given the time of year that it is with a lot of folks approaching the, the end of their fellowship programs now, are there any jobs that you that are open at SOBI that, uh, that you'd like to plug for our listeners? There sure are. Um, so we currently on the immunology MSL team have two MSL openings, one in the Great Lakes and one in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. And there's also one outside of field medical. It's a really kind of cool, unique role. It's medical information and pharmacovigilance. Well, that's awesome. So we'll do our best to get those uh, links to the job descriptions in the uh, in the show description for everybody to make it easy to uh, to check those out. Um, and so, you know, as we're getting here close to uh, to the end of the show, we've I think we've covered quite a lot of ground. But 
any other advice you'd share specifically for, for students and fellows who are, you know, again, interested in field medical-based roles? Um, what do you think that they should do um, either during their internships and, and rotations to set themselves up for success? And, and, and sorry, if you don't mind if I expand on this, some of the feedback we've gotten, practicing pharmacists who are trying to maybe make a tr- career transition as well. I know you went through fellowship, that's, that's the route you took, but I'm sure you've hired uh, individuals who did not come from uh, fellowship. Maybe they came from academia, retail, MDs, PhDs, PharmDs, but it's the span here as you consider the question. It, it sure is. So starting with people that are still in pharmacy school, If you have the opportunity to do a rotation or a summer internship in medical affairs, whether it's, I mean, if you can find one in field medical affairs and MSL, awesome. But if not, having exposure and an understanding of medical information, clinical development, health economics and outcomes research will certainly set you up for success when it comes time to apply for fellowships. I will say I did not have the opportunity to do any sort of rotation. I did not have any industry experience, but I still was able to get that fellowship. So don't be dissuaded or or demotivated if your school doesn't offer a rotation, but do try to seek out one over the summer if you can. Um, and as you said, Alex, like we do hire, I've hired PhDs that came right from the bench as well as pharmacists. I also personally don't believe that you have to have a D degree. I think it's, it's great, but we've had phenomenal MSLs that I've hired that were nurses, um, even had a veterinarian. Like it really, it doesn't matter as long as you, you love the science, you're motivated, um, and you have strong communication skills, but Thinking about, you know, if there is a pharmacist that's working retail, looking to make a shift, network, network, network. Um, and and don't, be, don't be upset if, you know, a couple of interviews don't work out. Some companies are looking for a very specific candidate, like um, perhaps somebody in retail shouldn't be applying for an MSL position in oncology, which is a horse of a different color if you have absolutely no expertise or experience in oncology. Um, Having said that, if you're a clinical pharmacist working with oncology patients, absolutely, you can apply. Um, But be proactive and don't take a no as a no across the board. You just have to be persistent and you will get an MSL uh, or anything in industry that you want. But also, if you want to be an MSL and you're looking to get your foot in the door, start off in medical information. You know, start off in something that um, will open the door for you and allow you to join an organization, get a more in-depth um, understanding, and to network internally. Yeah, half half the time it's it's figuring out the network. The other half is figuring out how to operate in a, a large organization. And I say that because I've only been uh, a part of big pharma, but figuring out how to navigate what each role does. Like I said, it's nebulous. Figuring, Determining what medical strategy is versus medical information is different at every company. MSL versus medical excellence. So it's it's great to have you on. You're the first person we've talked to who has experience in medical excellence. And it's been, for me, helpful to understand what you do as a medical excellence lead. Sure. And, and thank you. And it's also like what roles exist today might look very, very, very different three to five years from now. And there are plenty of roles that don't exist today that are going to be new, right? Like the world we live in is evolving and and changing. Um, 
So also don't fall in love with this is what I'm going to do. This plan is never changing because we change as people, right? Our life situations, our interests. If you would have told me this is what I'm, this is what my career path would have looked like 10 years ago, I would have been like, no, no. So just be open-minded and enjoy the ride, right? Enjoy the ride and take advantage of the opportunities. And not every day is sunshine and roses, but we should, we should be energized by our careers. Well, that is a lot of really highly concentrated good advice. Um, <laughs> I hope people take that to heart. It's been an absolute blast having you on the show, reconnecting after all this time. Who would have thought we'd be on a podcast together um, <laughs> after all these years? Um, I had a lot of fun. I hope this was fun for you too. And I'd love to have you back on the show sometime soon. I would love that. Let's do it in person perhaps one day. That sounds amazing. So with that, um, we'll say thanks for coming on the show and we will uh, talk soon. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Hey, we know you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in a pharmacy career. Keck Graduate Institute in Claremont, California offers a doctor of pharmacy degree that will prepare you for the ever-increasing diverse role that pharmacists play in providing healthcare. Unlike your standard PharmD, KGI offers unique certificates in four specialized areas, plus 10 different experiential rotations and unlimited connections within the pharmaceutical industry. KGI even offers a six-year accelerated PharmD for those of you coming directly from community college. Applications are still open for the fall of 2022. Learn more at kgi.edu slash farmd. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for this episode. We appreciate you spending your time with us. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. You can also visit us on the IPHO website to provide feedback and learn how to get involved. Please do it because we need your help. Until next time, take care and stay safe.